You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. Hi, everyone. It's Kino here. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast. If you are looking for an online place to practice, I would love to invite you to my online channel, Ohm Stars, where you can practice with me and our team of amazing teachers with over 3,000 classes and a whole new live offering. You can use the code PODCAST, all capital letters, to get your first month free. So come on over and let's start practicing. This episode is a talk I gave after a guided full primary series. We call these talks conference. And in this episode, I talk about the different forms of knowledge and what it means to truly step onto the path of yoga as self-realization rather than to get caught in get caught in the world of sensory pleasure, which leads us down to further cycles of suffering. So let's dive into this inspired talk about the true nature of yoga as a path of liberation. Thank you so much for the practice today. It was lovely to share this uh, space together with you. So lovely to see how each of you are putting in the hard work of the practice, you know, on your own at home with various distractions here and there as life is normally going. So congratulations on putting in the good work of the practice. Today, I want to begin to talk to you a little bit about our, how our relationship with ourselves changes over the course of practice. As we begin to practice, there is a different sense of self that begins to arise. It's said Patanjali, who is the author of the Yoga Sutras, written more than 2,000 years ago, clearly states that we have a choice moment to moment to make as we continue our practice, that we are either working towards our liberation through the continual practice of yoga, or we are working towards further ensnarement in the material world. And potentially presents this as the path of yoga or the path of what he calls boga, which it means the path of sensory enjoyment. I, the first time I read that, I thought it was a joke of the translator because when I heard boga, I immediately put the word bogus and yoga together. But that's not what it means. It's not fake yoga. Uh, boga means sensory enjoyment. So Patanjali says, moment by moment, we're making these choices. We are either working towards our liberation from delusion, or we're working towards further ensnarement in the cycle of sensory pleasure. And this is something that's happening to a large degree unconsciously. Whenever we're operating in the faculties of life that lead towards more ensnarement in cycles of suffering, we're operating from what we could call the small self. We're operating from the egoic self, from a self that is rooted in the untruth. And as long as we seek for permanent happiness in the material world, there is a kind of self-rejection that is at the most fundamental core of our identity. 
And it is this self-rejection that we seek to heal through the spiritual practice of yoga. When we reject ourselves, what we are rejecting is ourself as the spirit, ourself as something beyond the physical. When we seek to attain happiness through the means of material world, we glorify the ego and lift up the ego. So we're essentially moving away from what the spiritual teachings of yoga are. To understand how to relate with oneself is very challenging because it's a difficult space to really get the sense of what is the difference between operating from the ego versus operating from a transcendent sense of self. All of our patterning is pointing towards continuing these patterns of ego, whereas to shift direction is not so easy as just to turn around on your heels. To shift direction requires a consistent effort to retrain the habit pattern of the mind, but more than anything, yoga is built on the idea that an experience, a true immersive experience of what you could call the transcendent self or the Atman, you know, the, the self which is rooted in the spirit rather than rooted in the material, that eventually it is that experience which will change your worldview. So there are different types of knowledge and different types or ways of knowing. And one isn't prioritized as necessarily better than the other. In fact, all three of what Patanjali says are the different ways of knowledge are extremely important. We have what's called in Sanskrit pramana, intellectual knowledge. In the Western world, we prize intellectual knowledge almost above everything else. You know, there's a, you know, a funny expression of our time spent in university that says we spend all these years worshiping at an altar. What altar is that? The altar of learning, of, of, of knowledge, of education. Well, we're worshiping in that altar. It's the intellect, actually. The, particularly in the Western world, we have long tradition of prioritizing and valuing the intellect all the way back from Rene Descartes, whose idea of identity was rooted in thoughts themselves. I think, therefore I am, was a notion of proof of beingness in you know, Western Enlightenment intellectual thought. So this is what's called pramana, the intellect, what you can think about and logically come to a conclusion about. I'm sure if you even think about that for a moment, you can understand that there are flaws in logic. Just pause for a moment and remember a time when you came to a logical conclusion that was wrong. Can you think about that for a moment, right? Has everyone made a wrong logical conclusion? You had collected all of these facts and lined them all up and drawn a conclusion. There's a comedian that my husband likes a lot um, called David Chappelle. Does anybody else like Dave Chappelle? He's pretty funny, you know? I didn't know who he was when my husband was like, watching this comedy. I said, well, this sounds funny. Let me see it also. Now we watch the Dave Chappelle. And uh, if you haven't watched his recent uh, Netflix, I think it was on the Netflix YouTube, uh, you know, uh, the eight minutes and 43 seconds, it's definitely worth watching. It's that he's not really him as a comedian, but uh, it's really, really worth watching. Okay. So he anyhow tells this funny joke about how text messaging, you can see that the text messaging is uh, you can watch people go through logical conclusions which are not true. And he tells a funny story about how he was at his friend's house and he got 
he knocked himself out and ended up spending the night at his friend's house. Maybe you, you know, maybe you saw that uh, part of the, one of his comedy specials and then he saw his wife go through these logical conclusions, you know, oh, you haven't texted me back by now. I guess you found another woman tonight. Oh, she must be really good. Oh, hope she was worth it. Oh, we're doing it like that now. You're not going to even come home. Oh, you don't even text me back. Well, I guess that means we're over now. So she's drawing these logical conclusions drawn upon the fact that this guy is not showing up back home. And you can see that this is the mind. You could call it illogical, but she's gathering facts and using the logical mind to draw the conclusion that her husband has found another lady and is spending the night with this other lady and is you know, engaging in whatever activities. She's drawing that conclusion. It's a false conclusion. The logical mind is not absolute. We have the idea that the logical mind is only able to draw conclusions based on the known universe. What you know is programmed by your past, is programmed by what is our experience. This is not permanent knowledge. This is not forever knowledge. So the logical mind can draw really, really grievous conclusions. However, the logical mind can also draw the correct conclusion. But there is a limit to this. And this is why Patanjali says, you know, that every, every time we have uh, the different states of consciousness, they can lead us towards what's called klishta, painful, wrong conclusions, which generate pain. Or they can lead us to aklishta, without pain, meaning we've come to the right conclusion. Whenever we've come to a conclusion that's not lined up with reality, whatever, you know, small reality and larger reality, ultimate reality, then that conclusion will lead to suffering and further delusion. Then second type of knowledge is called agama, which is devotional knowledge. Devotional knowledge is best understood as the knowledge that you don't understand, but you take it to be true because you trust the source. So if you take a moment and think about those of you that have children, some of your children, until maybe a certain age, trust what you tell them. You know, don't do that. It's going to be bad for you. Then at some age, then they question, why is it bad for me? Let me try myself. As a parent, I could imagine that that is one of the worst experiences ever. <laughs> you know, like, no, no, please don't do that. No, you have to try for yourself. Okay. You know, the other example of that is trusting an authority figure. If you trust some authority figure, if you say, you know, this that doesn't make sense to me, but I trust this person because I, I, I feel, you know, either love for this person, whether it's a spiritual authority figure or whether it's, you know, just an authority figure, someone that you feel is more experienced than you are, then you defer to them because of trust. This is, this is also called devotional knowledge. This is what we have towards the sacred spiritual scriptures of any major world religion. So when we read something, we read something in a book that we have decided this is truth, this book, I might not understand it, but I recognize this comes from a higher power. Whatever your religion is, if you read the Bible, you read the Quran, you read the Dhammapada, you read, you know, the Upanishads, we read them and we try to glean some knowledge which is beyond our comprehension. And we think, well, they, you know, this is a sacred scripture is saying this. No, it doesn't make sense to me. Let me try. This is called Agama. Now, Agama, devotional knowledge, has its limitations as well. It is both klishta and akklishta. The klishta version of agama is when the source that you are devoting yourself to is not of the highest aligned nature. We can see this with, you know, the, our parents. Our parents are human beings, even with, you know, in deep intention, 
they say something truly, truly that they're trying to help you. You're trying to help your child, but you're flawed as a person. So you're not perfect. We make mistakes. Human beings make mistakes. If we place our faith 100% in a human being, sooner or later, we're going to get let down. And this is unfortunate with Agama. So sooner or later, some statement somebody else said is not going to ring true. They're going to fall off the pedestal. Even worse, if someone is abusing the devotional relationship. So if you have somebody in a position of power who is manipulating, abusing, or otherwise harming those beings who are trusting that person in position of power, this is one of the dangers of Agama. Lastly, mistaking the source. So if you read some book that's actually not you know, a true teaching, but it's just like some random book that we found, you know, nowadays anybody can put anything on the internet. Oh, I received this teaching, you know, and then, then they make a website and then suddenly you got on that website. You don't know how you got on that website. It has a little icon that looks nice, you know, good branding. And then suddenly you're, you're a devotee of some website guru, you know, and this, this is now you have a gamma. Oh, I read this on the website. Now I do every day, you know? Unfortunately, this is happening a lot. I speak to people, they have this agama, this devotional knowledge to things that they saw on YouTube or things that they saw on Facebook. And I speak to people, oh, why are you doing that? Oh, I read it on Facebook. I'm like, you read it on Facebook? No, please don't do that. You know, not that do everything you read on Facebook is wrong, but don't, that's, not an, that's not an authority to which you want to defer devotionally. Oh, I saw it on YouTube. Therefore, it's true. No, no, I put videos on YouTube. I know all what you have to do to put a video on YouTube. You put your phone and you just start talking. And then about five minutes later, you also can have a video on YouTube saying whatever you want. And just because another thousand, 10,000 people also watched the video and liked it does not make it true. That means everybody is drinking the same Kool-Aid. Everybody's jumping off the same mountain together. Doesn't make it true. And this is important. So this is one of the klishta versions of Agama. When we all like sheep, follow in one direction because everybody is following in that direction because we've trusted the source of what that knowledge has come from. We trusted that source. So we put all of our faith in that source. And then we end up at some moment realizing, oh, wait a minute, this is the delusion. Oh, I trusted Facebook. Then we feel embarrassed almost. How stupid of me, you know? Sometimes we do this with like strange diets. I don't know. I know some people that they have found some diet that a friend of theirs was posting, like I shall only eat the grapefruits. I did some grapefruit diet. I don't know. I, someone, said, someone actually said this to me. Kino, have you tried this? Do you think it's good for me? I'm reading this and it's eating one grapefruit in the morning and then one grapefruit in the evening and then whatever you want for lunch. And I was like, grapefruits are wonderful, but I mean, maybe a grapefruit farmer has made the diet. Then, you know, he wants to sell more, you know, he or she or, you know, they want to sell more grapefruits. So then, I don't know, so then you do this because you, know, you trust the source and it doesn't necessarily mean it's good. It can lead to klishta, it can lead to suffering. Now, agama, that is aklishta, is very interesting because agama, that is aklishta, is deferential authority to a source, an authority figure that has it right, that will save you time, that will save you getting lost along the path, that will save you getting hurt or harmed. This is when you literally stand on the shoulders of the elders who have come before you, people that have come before you. A, a really simple way for everyone to understand this is by trusting Google Maps. I would imagine that everybody here has trusted Google Maps, okay? So when you trust Google Maps, this is called deferential authority. This means, or even more than Google Maps, Waze. Waze is a wonderful one because Waze will reroute you into weird directions and you're, you know, you're there, you're looking on your phone, and while you're at a stoplight, not while you're driving, of course. Um, 
you know, and then the phone says, take the next right turn. Even if you grew up in the city, you live in that city your whole life, you put in ways, ways starts telling you to take yourself down roads you've never been down. Now, the first time, I don't know about you, but the first time that Waze did that to me, I'm skeptical. You know, I don't have immediate agama. The first time Waze did that to me, I thought, uh, 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 this little app, I don't know who programmed this out in Silicon Valley, but they're not here in Miami where I am born and raised and I know this city and this thing has a glitch. I'm not following this. And lo and behold, I went into a traffic jam. There was a construction thing that I didn't know was there because I'm not omniscient. Yes, I know the road is there, but I didn't know that by the last time I was there, between that time and now, there was a huge construction and of so much traffic. And then I looked down at the ways and I thought, next time, maybe I'm going to try what the app says. So the next time I tried the app, took me through some weird road. I'm going someplace, turning here, going there, looking at some houses I've never seen before in my own city. And then I arrived faster. And then I you know, looked on the uh, Google map and it showed some construction, some traffic jam, some accident, something like this is going on in the route I would have normally taken. Now, this has saved me time. This has saved me energy. And this has taught me a new road in my city. Oh, now I know I can go over this way, you know? So this is deferential authority at its best. When by deferring to an authority that you trust, that you don't know, but you trust because you trust the authority, then it saves you time. It is, increases your efficiency and it just uh, makes everything easier. It's a hard lesson to learn. This is repeated in the teacher-student relationship in the yoga tradition when the teacher-student relationship is at its best. Okay. Of course, as we know, this can also go wrong. What happened when I think like Apple Maps, they released their map for the first time and everybody was trusting it and they're driving off of, you know, dead end roads and suddenly they're trying to go places in New York City and Manhattan and they're landing in Queens or Brooklyn or something like this or taking them to buildings that don't exist or something like that. So you can also have a map that leads you in the wrong direction. You can have a teacher that leads you in the wrong direction. But if we find the good authority figure, whether it's ways, whether it's a spiritual teacher, whether it's a, with, you know, it's a sacred spiritual teaching from our religion, something like that, it can really save us time. We can really begin to learn, oh, I can learn the easy way. I can really, really learn the easy way. So ideally, they say that these types of knowledge line up, but they don't always. Ideally, they line up. In the ideal situation, okay, this makes sense to me. I can test it out empirically. Logically, my mind understands. Also, I feel that it's, I can surrender to this type of, great, I can surrender. So we have pramana, agama. And then the, the last type of knowledge, um, anumana. Oh, I've mixed them up a little bit. Pramana is actually the Sanskrit word for the, the last type of knowledge, which is direct experience, experiential knowledge, which is entirely different type of knowledge. Now, when we experience something to be true, we have an experience that might defy logic. We have an experience that might not be rooted in our surrender. We have an experience, something that has the potential to actually wipe away everything else, the potential to wipe away all of our impressions that we've made logically, to wipe away all of our authority that we've given over. Once we experience it, this is pramana. Anumana is the intellect. Agama is devotional knowledge. It's a, I can find the sutra, so you can read about it after if you want also. So what is Direct experience. Here's an interesting way how direct experience can wipe away all delusion. It's just the one that's coming to my mind right now. And also someone has posted in the chat uh, about the 
the misinformation and disinformation campaigns regarding the efficacy of wearing facial masks during our COVID crisis that we're facing right now. So I've read, uh, there's a lot of, there has been a lot of, you know, different people on social media, Facebook, YouTube saying, don't wear mask, mask is useless. You get mask me if you wear the mask. That's the new thing. Have you heard about that? You get zits from wearing the mask. So don't wear the mask. I don't know. I think zit is better. Like zit plus alive is better than no zit plus no more life. So anyhow, you can remove the acne if you need to with some creams or facial masks or things like that. And patience and good water. and Anyhow, wash the mask also. Then maybe no more mask, mask me. Anyhow, lots of these things are going out saying, you know, masks are bad. Oh, it's nothing. It, there's nothing to worry about. It's all just a hoax. Everybody go and do everything. Go back to bars, go around, these sorts of things. Well, there was a couple here in Florida that believed all of that. And unfortunately, this particular couple, they also had uh, many of the comorbidity factors that really uh, risk high risk factors that really mean that they really should have taken care. So they had uh, diabetes. They were both um, at a high uh, BMI, body mass index, and I think one other, an asthma. So they had a lot of these pre-existing conditions that you really, really should take care of right now. Anyhow, they believed all of this, no mask, not necessary. They made the logic, they took all this information, they trusted the sources it came from. It was from you know a website, a YouTube channel, a Facebook page that they'd trusted before. They put all this information and decided we don't take care. Anyhow, you know, reality comes in, the experience happened. Unfortunately, this couple, they contracted the coronavirus and they had ended up in the hospital. And one month later, only one of them has recovered. And this man, he, a, he you know, went onto his Facebook page and he posted a long experiential knowledge saying everything I thought that I believed because I trusted these sources, it wasn't true. All the conclusions I made because I logically thought this, that, and this, and that, and I drew these conclusions, they were all wrong. And me and my wife were sick and my experience is that this is real. So please take care, everyone. I'm so sorry I believed in all of this. So he wrote this and I thought, well, this was a clear illustration of how anybody can say anything to you. Even you can believe it. Anybody can come to any conclusion. Even you can believe it. You can write whole treatises about how you logically do do something. Once you experience something for yourself, that wipes away everything else. This is why the Yoga Sutras say that experience is the most power, direct experience is the most powerful form of knowledge. So we have to be very conscious of what experiences we're gathering and what experiences we're interested in gathering, right? So this experience, unfortunately, led this couple to suffering. Hopefully they can recover. You know, I think now at the end of the day, the man was recovered, the wife was in recover, like hopefully recovering. I didn't see any follow-up updates. You know, I didn't follow them. I just watched the story. So we can send them some good vibes and hopefully they are making a recovery. And anybody else that is going to fall for these delusions, if they can also, you know, see stories like that and wake up to what is, you know, incontrovertible truth. Now, when we think about this, what is the klishta version of direct experience? How can you experience something to be true within you, but have it lead to non-truth, lead to more pain? This is confusing because we think, oh, but I've experienced it. So it's definitely true, 100% true. How many of you have had some experience where you thought everything lined up, but it wasn't true? This is why your yoga practice is a great teacher of this. How many times have you been doing a yoga pose and then you hear an instruction that you think is not for you? 
You know what I mean? Like you're in backbend and you hear, send your pelvis forward. And you're like in your mind, my hips are so forward. They are so forward and they are so up. That's not for me. Or you hear, lift your leg up or point your toe. And you're like, my toe is pointed. That's so not for me. And then maybe you hear your name or maybe you hear your teacher coming nearby you. And then they have pointed your toe back when we could give assists or they grabbed your pelvis and moved it forward. And then you had a different experience that trumped your other experience that had taken the place of the other experience. So you can think about now you have had one experience that led you to a dead end. Now you have a different experience that shattered that. Another classic example of how sometimes our direct experience is a little bit flawed is when our direct experience sometimes leads us into making incorrect assumptions or judgments about ourselves or our world. Example of this is when we decide that we are in love, you know, sometimes, yes, we're definitely in love. Other times we're in lust and when nobody can talk us out of that, oh, I love this person. I love them. They're so good. They're like, oh, but they have no job. They eat all your food and then you have to pay all their bills. Why do you love them? They're perfect for me. This is the love of my life. You know, and all your friends are like, no, no, but they don't treat you nicely either. Actually, they're saying mean things to you. No, no, I feel it. You can't be talked out of it then. Now it's my experience. When the hand touches my hand, I feel electricity. So nothing else matters. And then we throw ourselves in. Now we've given up our, everything we can just for that experience. So this is leading to klishta. Sooner or some later, then the electricity touch wears off. The initial you know, polarity of attraction wears off. And maybe there was a chemistry that was physical there, but this is lust. You know? Then you wake up and you're like, wait a minute. You don't speak nicely to me. I pay all the bills. You eat all the food. You also don't clean nothing. All right. Actually, now I have a new experience. Constantly our experience is changing. So one of the main things with direct experience is that it's always rooted in whatever limited paradigm we're experiencing now. This is what we call our vantage point. The point by which we are experiencing the world. The intersection that we sit at is inevitably colored by our history, our place in society, you know, what we look like, what we have experienced in the past, what we think, what our religion is, what language we speak, all of these things, our class, our socioeconomic class, the level of education, our gender, all of these things are the intersections that we sit at and they create a vantage point from which we experience things. That experience is not omnipotent. None of us are God. We're not seeing all things from all perspectives. So our experience is limited. So while we may have a small truth that we experience, we can always expect that that changes. The classic example of experiential knowledge, the limits of experiential knowledge are from the yoga tradition is take six blind people and put them around an elephant and ask them to describe what their experience of that elephant is. Oh, what is elephant to you? One will say they're holding the trunk. It's long and flexible and you know has a wet tip at the end. I've actually never touched an elephant trunk, but I imagine it looks kind of like it's moist at the bottom where they do things with it. I'm just imagining. Sorry if that's not true. I don't mean to offend any elephants, you know? So then the other person is going the tail. Oh, it's very long and skinny and has a little fluffy at the end. Another one is touching the tusk. Oh, it feels like smooth, like porcelain with a sharp point. Another one is holding the... The, 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 the huge thigh of the elephant. Oh, it's so huge and muscular. Another one is on top. 
floating on top of it. It's like a huge ball that moves from side to side. Every single one is having a correct experience, but it's not the whole truth. So we have to accept that what we experience, although has the potential to change everything, to change our world, change our paradigm, it is nevertheless limited by the intersection and the vantage point that we sit at in our culture, our society, our history, all of that. Mm -hmm. So when we come into the practice, ideally, these three line up. When these three line up, we have the best opportunity for what we call self-realization. It's difficult when your experience contradicts what your mind logically concludes to and what your heart wants to lead you towards what your devotional knowledge, your intellectual knowledge, if your experience is in contrast to that, this is a difficult point to be with. The ideal situation is when you can look at a situation empirically, it makes sense. Logically, it makes sense. Oh, I see. This makes sense to me. I get it. Okay. Makes sense. You can line it up intellectually. Number two, not only me, but my teacher also says this works. Oh, this is the same teaching I can find in you know, the scripture, sacred scripture of my religion. Great. Makes a lot of sense. The teacher says it. You know, my, the, the holy person that I follow also says it. Wonderful. Makes a lot of sense. Okay, great. Okay, then now I feel it. Makes I want to defer to that. Then you, then you try it out for yourself. And then it works. Yeah, excellent. Everything lines up. This is what we're after in the yoga practice. Treat your yoga practice as a laboratory for this type of knowledge. And this allows you to change not only how you're interacting with other people, definitely we have to change how we show up in the world, we practice yoga, become more sensitive, but let this change how you relate with yourself. Let this change how you relate with yourself on a very deep and fundamental level. When we move from self-knowledge, what is self-knowledge? When we move from an experience of a transcendent sense of self, what we call the Atman in yoga, what we could call the soul or the spirit and you know, more of a Judeo-Christian paradigm, you know, what we think about as that essence, which is living here in the physical, but is not the body, that essence, which is, which is experiencing emotions and thinking, but is transcendent of it all. When we can identify with that, then we have a change in how we relate with ourselves. So we read the scriptures. The scriptures say, there is something inside of you, which is eternal, which has never been born, will never die, which has, which has always been. There is an essence within you which has the spark of divinity, the spark of perfection. Call this Purusha, the Atman, you know, what we want to think about this as the, the true self, our higher self, self. But we read this. Oh, the scripture says this is there. Wonderful. We read about it. Maybe we don't understand what has happened. All sorts of intellectual questions happen. Okay, so what happens after? Where does this thing go? What does it look like? You know, uh, what happens? Is it going to go on to another body or does it go and just live in some paradisial afterlife with, you know, lots of beings? What do we do? We don't know. But we read, okay, so the scriptures say this, so Agama, some devotional knowledge, okay, maybe that's there. Something is there. Some, you know, mind matter phenomenon is happening. There's some watching consciousness. There's a Buddha nature. Okay, we read about that. Then we think about it. When we think about it, okay, well, you know, if we've been present to any being's birth, we can experience the miracle of that. If we've been present to any being's passing, this also is a miracle because it really shows, oh, what was life is no longer here in this physical body. Life, something else than the material structure. Even watching uh, you know, plants 
plants grow, produce a fruit, fruit is gone, but the plant, something else, what is the life force that's generating all of this? We don't know, you know? So you can think logically. Logically, we can draw some conclusions. Am I my body? No. Logically, you have to really can draw the conclusion. I am not my body. No, I'm not my body. You can, we are, we get falsely identified with the body. But if you really think about it for a while, you can really say, oh, I am not my body. My body experiences things, but there is anyhow a space between me, whatever is the sense of that can be I and my body. Harder to make this logical conclusion. Am I my thoughts? Am I my thoughts? Very hard for people in the Western world to detach from their thoughts, the thinking mind. As I mentioned, the foundation of so much Western intellectual thought coming from, you know, the days of the, you know, enlightenment, enlightenment thinking, Renaissance thinking, I think, therefore I am, you know, orchestrated for, by Rene Descartes. I think, therefore, the thinking, 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 this uh, intellectual knowledge. So hard for the mind to not identify with thoughts. So this is a powerful thing that you can logically come to this conclusion. I am not my thoughts. What a powerful liberation that realization is. I am not my thoughts. Wow. All those negative thoughts that I have thought about myself, all those judgments that I'm carrying about myself, all those things I'm thinking about others, I am not that. What a relief. What a relief. You know? Fantastic. I am not my emotions, thoughts and emotions tied together. This is also hard. I am not my emotions. Wait a minute. I'm not my emotions. Oh, anger is present. I'm not anger. Right? Sadness is present. Oh, I'm not sadness. What is sadness then? It's an experience. Weather. You know, I can best describe emotions as weather. It's weather. Raining, raining, raining. Sure, we can identify with the rain, but this is false. We can experience it. We can blend with it even for a moment. It is not us. So now, sometimes, The best way we can work with this type of knowledge when we come to self-realization is what we, what we, some, you know, what you may have heard from the traditional yoga teaching as the practice of neti neti, which means not this, not this, neti neti. Everything we experience, oh, I'm not that, not that. What am I? I'm not that, not that. I don't know what I am, but I know I'm not that. I don't know yet because I haven't experienced Purusha. I haven't experienced the limitless, boundless state of, you know, the eternal spark of the spirit, but I know I'm not my thoughts. I know I'm not my body. So I'm going to keep searching, 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 and keep experiencing, experiencing, experiencing until I experience something which is beyond what we call the field of mind and matter, the field of what we think, the field of what we experience in the realm of the body. So we keep searching, keep searching, keep searching. This is yoga. This quest to define the self as something other than the temporary arising and passing of thought, emotion, physical sensations, embodiment, whatever this body is, whatever lessons this body has come with, this is not you. When we experience that, this is self-realization. This is the enlightenment that we seek from the practice. All these asanas we're doing, what purpose are all these asanas if not for that? All these techniques in yoga, what purpose if not for that? If just for asanas, 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 just to stretch or twist or bend the body, you know, what use? At some moment, then anyhow, stretching, bending, twisting is boring. You know, I've been doing yoga now many years. At some moment, you look at that same posture and then you think, oh no, you again. How many times do I have to do this thing? Again, again, I do forward bend 
every day for, I think I've done a forward bend every day for the last like 25 years. I don't know. Now forward bend. Oh, look, forward bend, forward bend, forward bend. Even I've been married to yoga longer than I've been married to my husband's. It's going to be the yoga practice is going to be my longest relationship for sure. You know, we think about it. I started, maybe not for everybody. For me, I started yoga before I met my husband. Then anyhow, I'm younger than he is. Chances are (laughs) it's going to be my longest relationship, you know, God willing. Right. So then we have conflicting relationships with certain asanas. Somebody just wrote that, you know, chaturanga. So people have conflicting relationship with chaturanga. Think chaturanga. Some days we like it. Some days don't like it. Some people, they love chaturanga, some other people. So we have these relationships with the practice. So when we think about this relationship with the practice, if it's only going to be stretching, bending, twisting, getting stronger, beefing up the shoulder so we can do push-ups, something like this, very quickly, this gets expended. This is why there are so many fitness trends because it's boring, this whole body thing. So there's a, a phrase in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras called jugupsa which many people mistranslate. They translate this as, oh, now I'm going to hate my body. No, it's you wake up and you realize I'm not my body. That's all that means. You realize, oh, I'm not this. I'm not this. And it's boring to be in the body after a while. You know, think about it. There's so much care they have to take every day for the body. And again, this is why there's so many fitness trends. We can do, you know, this one fitness trend for a little while, it gets boring. If it's only about the body, it's limited. Then you end that. Then also, you know, they have to do something else. Then more interesting for a little while. Then that ends. Then we do something else. That also bored. Then we do something. Again, again, things change. But yoga is different because the self that we are trying to wake up to is not the body, not the mind, something else. Infinite. Something which is infinite always, always is there for you. So this is what we are here to somehow wake up to in the practice. This is our infinite journey towards the true self towards the being of spirit that currently has a body. Thankful that we have this body. What a wonderful field of experience this body is. Thankful that we have this mind that can think thoughts and work in the realm of intellect. Wonderful. Thankful that we have this feeling capacity of emotions. We can work in the realm of agama and devotion. But yet we're using these tools, the tool of intellect, the tool of experience, the tool of devotion, the tool of yoga, to experience liberation of the minds from these chains themselves. We're trying to wake up to the idea of, you know, a transcendent true self. Think about this. Even if we look scientifically, there is something called the law of conservation of energy. First of all, before I continue, let me say I'm no scientist, just to have some memory from high school, okay? Remember, we've all taken these physics classes, college, high school, and we've taken that information does what every high school student does with information that you receive from high school. You place it into the garbage, right? So hopefully not. I'm just kidding. Ideally, we take in all the good information, but this, you know, this is what we do in teenagers. We're not like, oh, this is valuable information. Let me save this in my brain. So anyhow, law of conservation of energy. If we remember, energy cannot be created or destroyed, but only changed in form. If you are energy, then that applies to you too. That means there's something in you If you are energy, if you believe, oh, I have energy, there's some energy here, then that applies to you too. So there must be something in you, which has always been, has never been created or destroyed, just changed in form. That means that from the beginning of time, time always, from eternity, some element of you, what yoga would call purusha, has always been. That within you, purusha is called birthless and is therefore also deathless. That which is born must also die. That which has become 
in this way must also go. But that which has always been is. When we tap into Purusha, we tap into this transcendent state of self. And this is self-liberation, self-knowledge, right? Sometimes people hear this word self and then they think, oh, this is a really egoic path, this yoga. We think, oh, I'm going to worship myself? No, 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 not that self. That's the ego. Immediately ego is thinking, recognizing it's not, you know, the, the not worthy of that. And that's somehow true. The ego and all of its, uh, you know, uh, convoluted twists and turns uh, needs to be transcended. Not rejected, but transcended. That's a different, there's a difference there. When we tap into that idea of self-liberation, we are tapping into the same eternal spark of the spirit, which is present in every living being, which is present in every living being. You, me, animals, the earth itself, the life that illuminates the plants, the emptiness, which is through spread through the entire universe. We tap into that. Now, this is something else than the ego. This is something else than what we think, our casual thoughts, which repeat over and over. And we understand, oh, self-liberation means actually to be freed from the ego so that we experience transcendent self. This is why when you'll see self-liberation written in yoga language, it's a capital S. And we could replace that self-liberation with God-realization because that is to experience that universal state of divinity. We have the idea of the mantra that I'm often saying at the end of some classes, Purnamadak, Purnamidam, Purnat, Purnamadachyate, Purnasya, Purnamadaya, Purnameva, Vashishyate, that that seed of perfection exists within you, that seed of perfection exists within the universe. Every, every molecule, every particle, every packet of energy in the universe contains the same spark and seed of perfection, that that is the holographic nature of wholeness and perfection at the level of transcendence, that that exists as a real tactile experience for yogis. And this is, again, written thousands of years ago, this mantra, uh, corroborated by some recent scientific discoveries in the idea of a quantum field which connects all beings and can be experienced by you through the tools of yoga. And that's why we keep practicing. That's why we keep practicing, keep practicing. That's why practice can get better as we age. If it's only physical, I have some bad news for you if you didn't realize. Practice makes a trajectory that looks very much like what we want our, you know, coronavirus numbers to be looking like right now. We want, we want things to go down. So practice also makes a trajectory like that. Oh, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Right, physical practice at some moment starts maybe getting worse and worse. It's okay. The yoga is getting better and better. Yoga is not measured by how long you hold headstand. Your success in yoga is not measured by how deeply can I put my legs behind my head. Your practice in yoga is measured by the depth of your experience of that transcendent self, the depth of your ego purification, the depth through which we have been able to line up those three types of knowledge in service of self-realization, God-realization, immersion in the truth of our higher being, our inner being. So we still have a little bit of time. If you have any questions, then you're welcome to type those into the chat. Otherwise, I'm also going to take a look at the chat as well and see if there were any questions that 
popped up there. If you wanted to know which uh, sutra I was talking about, I just find it for you here. It's in like one, it's in book one. Uh-huh. Yes. Okay. It's in book one. One seven was the sutra that I was talking about. And uh, we have these three types of knowledge. And this is number one seven. I think I, looking at this, maybe I have said one of the words wrong. So I read it to you now and uh, give you also a little time if you're typing anything into the chat. So this was the sutra we were talking about uh, in relation to the different types of knowledge. Pratyaksha anumana gama pramanani. Pratyaksha anumana agama pramanani. So my mistake was uh, pramana actually means the 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 is the type of knowledge is the knowledge, but pratyaksha was the sense perception. So I made a little mistake with my memory. Uh, sorry about that. But uh, Yoga Sutra one seven. So you can look this up yourself and do a little bit of self-study. The, uh, the many copies of the Yoga Sutras exist. I like the copy from Edwin Bryant. This is a really wonderful one. If you're interested, I like this one. Only problem with this one is it's very thick. So it might not be a good first Yoga Sutra. There are many other sort of friendly beginner Yoga Sutra ones. Now we have some questions about the practice. So Pauline is asking, how much of primary series should you do when you're also planning to do drills on the same day? Like if you want to join the handstand challenge or the handstand course. So here's what I recommend. It depends on you. If you have lots of energy, you can do lots of things, but you're going to get tired, sore. So if you're thinking, okay, I want to do like handstand training. I have been periods in my life where I've done handstand training with some like circus artists and former, you know, former gym, like Russian gymnasts and these sort of things. And I got to tell you that I have not been able during those times to maintain full power Ashtanga, nor did I, nor do I think it's recommended. So if you're going to do like one hour of handstand training, then maybe no more than one hour of yoga. Otherwise your body can get too tired. So it's only if you want to, maybe, you know, then you accept uh, to do a little bit lighter primary series. Maybe you can soften the jump backs and the jump throughs, but keep working your flexibility. So the flexibility is extremely important in that regard. I love handstand training. Not everybody does. It's a, I love it because I was a, naturally a very, very weak person when I started the practice. So many people assumed that I was a dancer or a gymnast. I was never a dancer. I was never a gymnast. Handstand for me was probably the most difficult thing I've ever tried. It took me five years of toppling over uh, before I could balance my first handstand. I had people come up to me and say, Kino, maybe you should stop trying. You know, it was that bad. They recommended, maybe you should stop. You know, and I said, no, no, I want to keep trying. Then people would say all sorts of things to me like, you know, but your thighs are so big. And I thought, yes, I know. I think that every time I go up, but I want to try anyway. Oh, but your arms are so small. Oh, how are you going to do that? And I thought, I don't know, but I want to keep trying for five years. Then anyhow, it uh, became more possible. How long it takes you? I don't know. Hopefully less than five years. So this is this course that's coming out in July. If you want to join, wonderful. It's happening in July. Um, then some other people are asking about uh, we have a training that's coming up. It's uh, starting at the end of July. It's the first time Tim and I are leading our 200-hour course online. And this is because of the times that we're in right now, because of the COVID situation in the world. We normally do this course as a one-month course in Miami in July. 
And many of the people who were going to join, they were not able to join because we don't know the travel situation changes every day. And, you know, right now the United States is not to be trusted with um, controlling our coronavirus right now. <laughs> um, we're having some problems, especially here in Florida now. It's a little bit uh, scary. So we're going to keep it online. So uh, this starts in July and the course is going to be really, uh, we hope it'll be really powerful also because we've spaced it out over a longer period of time. So rather than one month, we've made it 12 weeks. The recordings are going to be available in case you can't join because of different time zones or different uh, life circumstance. As long as the, you, you know, be up to date on the recordings, then this will be good. Uh, now, everybody is somehow welcome to join if you are interested in this course. It's going to be really, really wonderful, we hope. So that's uh, some other people are also asking if we're planning any other online immersions after the pandemic is over. Uh, first of all, I really hope that the pandemic is over really soon. And even after this is over, definitely we've had such a good response from people joining online that we're going to continue online offerings, whether it's an immersion or classes like this or just making it available online. It's also you know, dramatically more accessible financially for people to join from home rather than take an airplane to a city and book a hotel for who knows how long and stay there. So this is something we're definitely going to uh, keep doing in the future. As long as the world keeps functioning, we'll be doing this. And uh, now we, let me take a little bit of a look at some other questions that have arisen. So Amber asked, I've been teaching for seven years and I'm at a crossroads. I keep taking trainings, but I'm unsure how to start teaching my learnings. Great question, Amber. So the first thing to think about is just start, you know, we're always waiting for the perfect circumstance here or there. I remember when I first started teaching that I felt like, oh, maybe I'm not worthy of teaching because I didn't feel that you know, I was good enough yet. So I made it really simple that I started to teach for free. And this was something I felt like, well, at least I felt like it's free. You know, nobody can say that I ripped them off. You know, nobody can say that like, oh, well, you know, uh, this was a bad class. It's like, it's a free class. You know, it's kind of like you get a free coffee. If it's a bad coffee, you're like, it was free, you know? So that for me took the burden off of it. Um, when I started teaching, I was teaching people that asked me to teach. I did a few trades, like a, I, had a, I started teaching as a, there was a massage therapist. I did some trades with massage therapists. I think it was better for me than for the massage therapist, to be honest with you. I got the free massage and this poor dude, he had to do yoga. And I was there saying, take Trikonasana, do like this, do like that. And uh, he, then he had to, you know, give me a massage after. I, I think I got the better deal. But anyhow, he was happy enough to keep going with the yoga classes. And then at some moment, what happened for me, I would teach uh, here or there. I just took every opportunity that came up and was really important for me to just uh, accept what was given. So the, 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 the ability to just start, okay, this, this studio, they want me to teach. Great. I didn't ask about, you know, financially, I didn't care because I felt like I'm a new teacher. So I feel like there's a period of time when if you're a new teacher, you just have to start, start with donation classes, start with free classes, start with anything that anybody will give you and just get experience, experience, experience. After some moment, you're going to wake up and realize, you know what, you're going to see in your students that your teaching is making a positive impact. And at that moment, you're going to pause and recalibrate and think about, okay, 
now I've had a lot of experiences and a lot of donation classes. So you've also put in, this is your way also to give back to yoga during that period where you do these donation classes, these sort of free classes, you're giving back, you have received, now you give a little. Then from there, there's some foundation of, okay, now I'm confident in myself as a teacher. So maybe I still keep some free classes, some donation classes, but now I'm confident. So you take a, then you can make a, after some, you know, some period of time, whether it's six months, a year, depends on you also what your financial circumstances allow you to do. Then you can say, now, Jing, this is my minimum for a class, something like that. So I, I recommend the period where you're focused on giving and then you just give and give and give and give and give. Let that be, and you're getting through that experience too. And, uh, you know, it's, otherwise it's difficult to go in and say, oh, you know, how do I start? How much do I charge? This and that. So if you just start easy, things start to flow, but stop questioning yourself. It's, you know, if it's been there, you've been, you've been, if you, you know, you're, if you're at this crossroads, put it out there, keep going time. Okay. So Jenny has a practical question when jumping forward or through from downward dog, do you inhale through or retain the breath? So traditionally we inhale, jump through, exhale into the posture or exhale down. So you want to coordinate your breath with movement. Try not to hold your breath when you move. Otherwise, it restricts the movement. That being said, you don't need to have like the deep, long inhalation that you have at the end of practice. Just let the inhale happen. However, it shall happen. Okay. So Carol asks, I had lung surgery in the past. During sun salutation B, I get really tired and I have real difficulty breathing in downward dog. Is there anything I can do to make it easier? Well, first of all, if you had the lung surgery, then I recommend to start your practice off with at least some breath work. Do breath work before you start the practice. 10 deep breaths, do jai breathing before you start the practice. Warm up the lungs, get into healing of the lungs. Number two, if you feel that the downward dog, it is like an almost inverted posture. If you feel start to put pressure on the lungs, you can sink the knees down and take half downward dog. So I, you know, I really recommend that if you're any part of the body that is stressed because of a previous lungs because you had the lung surgery or it's your knee because you had the knee surgery or your hamstring because I was injured last year or something like that, whenever you're coming back, be gentle with your body, gentle with the body. So if the body's getting stressed, you feel too much, make some modification so that it's better for you. Okay. Now, this is the same. I see somebody is writing something about the, the, the injury that comes sometimes at our attachment of the hamstring. Same as you would do, you can make uh, the same modification by bending the knees. You can, you can work on adjusting the practice so it's appropriate for your body. I can tell you over and over again that this is your practice. If you have a, a, a pain that's in your body that would potentially lead to injury, modify the practice so that it's appropriate for you. You know, maintain your agency in the practice, okay? Now, Iz is asking a question about meditation and asana. So she was joining the class yesterday where we had a longer meditation. So yesterday, it says it, I talked about how meditation is not asana. They're different and about the different steps within meditation. However, the steps, breath focus and stopping the fluctuations of the mind are present in asana. How do you look at meditation in asana? So they're the same qualities of mind that will come up in more subtle practices like meditation, you're working on in asana. Asana is the foundation for these more subtle experiences of meditative mind, the more subtle experiences of kind of the inner, inner world. So what we're doing is working on those same faculties of concentration, those same faculties of a breath awareness, those same faculties of mind control 
through the vehicle of asana. Asana, it's easier to put all of that together. Meditation is harder because there's no stop for, there's no break really. So we're working on the same qualities, but they begin to be more subtle when we only sit. And instead of controlling the breath, we just feel the breath. Instead of bending the body, we just feel the body. Instead of you know, directing the mind to the drishtis, we simply watch our thoughts. And we can see this is more subtle, harder. They say that there are some people, they can immediately try meditation. But we talked a little bit about this yesterday. You know, it's hard to sit on the floor. If it's so much pain for you to sit down, then the body is a distraction to meditation, number one. Number two, our busy minds have such a hard time closing the eyes. There are people who say to me, I can't meditate. But of course you can meditate. Why do you think I can't meditate? No, I can't meditate. I think too much. I'm like, oh, meditation is good for you. The person who's thinking too much, that person itself would benefit the most from meditation. That person who is so calm that they have so few thoughts coming that they just look at the tree and feel peace. That person, they should probably do some asana, you know? It's already easy for them. The, exactly the same thing with yoga. Some, I just spoke to someone, oh, yoga, I should do that. Oh, why don't you do it? Oh, I'm too stiff. I'm like, you're too stiff? Yoga is great for you. The stiff person, that person is going to benefit the most from yoga. Oh, I'm going to wait till I get more flexible. What do you think? How are you going to get more flexible? What are you going to do to get more flexible if not yoga? Are you just going to lie on the sofa and visualize flexibility? This is absurd. Let me just uh, dream myself flexible. Oh, I'm flexible. I'm flexible. Right, I'm flexible five times down every day. No, you have to do something. It's not going to arrive at your doorstep one day. It's not like a flexibility angel that's going to come and visit you. Oh, now I anoint you with flexibility. No, it doesn't work like that. You want to stretch your hamstrings. You have to stretch the hamstrings. Don't wait for the hamstrings to become flexible. You wait your whole life and guess what? It only gets stiffer. The same thing with the mind. You think your mind is busy now? I got to tell you, the older you get, the more thoughts you collect, you know? Then this is, I speak to so many people. It's, oh, I used to sleep so well when I was younger. Now I cannot sleep. I'm like, why can't you sleep? Well, I'm thinking the whole night. You have to meditate. Please meditate. You have to find peace in the mind. And this is so important to think about. Don't think I can meditate because I have too many thoughts. Don't think I can't do yoga. I'm too, I'm too stiff. I'm too this. I'm too that. No, no. Work with what you have. Start with where you are. Also, people think their body. I, th- I hear this also a lot of times from people. I really want to do yoga. Oh, what are you waiting for? I just want to lose some weight first. I'm like, no. Why? You think you need to be skinny to do yoga? This is ridiculous. Anybody can do yoga. Literally anybody. There's no right size or shape for the practice. Ridiculous. Also, it's, you don't come to the practice to you know, force the body to be in one size or one shape. I know if we look at like mainstream yoga iconographic imagery of like what, what they're trying to sell yoga leggings in, then it looks like you have to be a particular size and shape. I never felt like I fit into that. I'm small. And as I mentioned before about the handstands, I, my thighs are a little bit bigger so much. So people used to say, oh, Kino, your thighs are so big. So then I also thought my thighs were big. It's not like I never thought that, you know? And they never used to, like my legs never used to fit in um, jeans before they were stretchy. This was one of the most humiliating experiences of my childhood, trying to try on jeans. To this day, I still don't like them, jeans, even though they're stretchy now, stretchy better. So anyhow, when we think about, when we think about that, we think, what is that? If you think, oh, I need to lose weight before I start yoga. No, not like that. The, your body is perfect as it is. Whether, 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 you know, health is one thing, but that's not the weight loss culture that goes into your mind and says, oh, I need to 
lose weight before I start yoga. Then it's that same thing about flexibility. It's that we don't, there's something in us that is not ready to take a stand for our worthiness. There's something in us that says, I'm less than. There's something in us that says, you know, I'm, I'm not good enough for this. So we have to reject that because that's the ego talking. We have to, and that rejection of not good enough is the first step in self-realization that says, no, I, as a being of the spirit, am worthy of doing yoga. I am worthy of meditation. I'm worthy of these spiritual tools. I'm worthy of happiness. I'm worthy of love. Not defined by what size or shape one of my body looks like, but by that immutable faculty of beingness. And that's what we're here to experience. Okay. So now two people have asked the question about chanting. How important is chanting to the practice? Well, at least Aum. I think Aum in the, as a minimum. Number one, you don't need to memorize anything. This is very easy to do. Om. Everybody can Om. Om, Om. Wonderful. So if you feel the chanting is overwhelming, sometimes we hear the chanting and we think, oh, I remember the first time I heard the opening prayer. I thought, oh, this was wonderful. And then I was terrified when I had to repeat it back to the teacher. I don't know if you ever felt like that. You know, oh, I can do this. Wonderful. You know, even a baby. Oh, even your dogs. Some people have dogs, especially huskies. They're oh, you know, so even animals can om together. Fine, right? But then you hear, one day gurunam chadanada vinde. Oh, this is wonderful. Then, I, then there was a silence and everybody in the class started saying it back. I thought, oh my God. You know, I was so terrified. I thought, I don't speak Sanskrit. I didn't even know it was Sanskrit at that time. It's like, I don't know what language this is. I just don't speak it. But just closed my eyes and tried to be very small, you know, and hide. <laughs> and uh, I remember still the first time I, I was learning some more in-depth chanting with my teachers in India, I was filled with the same horror of needing to repeat back some sounds that me as a native English speaker growing up in Florida was like, I felt like, wow, this is extremely overwhelming. I don't even understand how to make these sounds. And I've never heard them before. How can I repeat the sound? Then look at it on a piece of paper. It doesn't help. You look at it. You're like, oh, there's a lot of consonants there. How do we put those all together? So what you can do, if you're interested in learning the chanting, the opening prayer and the closing prayer, these are really, really good to start out. They're relatively easy to do. I would start there. How can you learn that? Call and response is probably the best way to learn that. Call and response. My chanting teacher, Jayashri, she has a course on Om Stars. This is a really wonderful way to learn. Uh, she's very friendly. She repeats many times and breaks things down. So she does the opening prayer and the beginning of all of the call and response to the Yoga Sutra classes. This is wonderful. If you can't do the chanting yet, you can also listen to the, the chanting, the opening and closing prayer. You can find this many times, many places all over, all over. All right. So uh, the experience of learning, the experience of learning is something that happens within you. Now, not everybody's going to be able to go to India and study. Definitely, you can't go back in time to 20 years ago when I first went to India. Uh, then definitely India is different now. I felt like, you know, even there's a part of me that romanticizes the past. When I think about my experience when I first went to India, no internet. There's to be no internet. And there was no possibility of internet. That's not necessarily true. There was one internet cafe, internet cafe, like even that, it's like internet cafe. There was an internet cafe 
didn't even say cafe. It was not a sign that said internet. And I felt like, all right, let me, I remember going in there because I felt like I needed to send like an SOS to my mom, dad, let them know I was alive. I've landed. I went into the internet cafe and it was all dark. No lights were on. And then I walked in and then there was a guy sleeping at a desk. And I, I said, excuse me, sir. He jumped up. Oh, madam, what do you want? And I said, I want internet. And he said, oh, internet. One second, please. And then, and then he turned on the lights and they made this whirring sound. And then, and then I said, okay, I just want to use the internet. Moment, moment. I said, okay, moment. Let's, let's experience this. And then for the entire internet cafe, he had to turn like some generator on. I guess, I think it was maybe a power cut. So he turned all the lights came on. And then I heard the, the dial-up sound of the old internet connection. Like it wasn't broadband. There was like these old sounds. If you had America Online back in the day, these like ridiculous sounds, sounds like a fax machine going wrong, you know? And then this was going on to put internet at the, all the computers. Then the computers were like this bubble shape. This like old, like 1980, like, like the, the original IBM. They like sent them over to this internet cafe. Then you turn it on, you wait like 10 minutes, then it comes on. And yeah, it took me an hour. Send, I, I managed to type out, mom, I'm alive. And then like sent over to her. <laughs> and uh, it was very intense. So yeah, all I'm saying is I romanticize these days. Now you go to India and then you get the SIM card and then you have your iPhone and then you're FaceTiming people while you're going around. It's, a, you know, it's still really, really wonderful. So I'm saying that only to indicate that the depth of teaching is about you. You can depending on how much you bring with your heart and your soul into the practice, that depth, that depth you're going to experience. Some people, they go to India and they just party. You know, they go to India and then, oh, I'm in India. woohoo! And then they just, they go over there, they party. Then they have, you know, too much of fun, too little yoga. Also, that can be nice. You know, we want to relive some dream of wanderlust. Okay, we can do that. But uh, the depth that you experience is what you bring to the practice. So that spark of the eternal, it's here now within you. You can experience it now. The only difference is that it's harder with all of our attachments and patterns of our daily life. It's harder because we have a momentum. Mail comes in. We have to open the mail, look at it, read it, file it, recycle it, throw it out, that sort of thing distraction arises, you know, it's hard not to go online and look at cat videos, you know, they're cute. It's very hard. If you're deprived of all these things, no internet, no mail, no text messages, nothing like this is arriving, then it's much easier to direct the mind inward. That's something to consider. Whether you go to India, whether you go to a retreat, whether you go to some intensive or whether you make self-retreat at home, you know, you do suddenly you unplug your modem and say, okay, I take one day internet fast, you know, and you take one day that you don't do anything except study, make self-retreat. This can be really, really useful. Or join a class like you're doing now where you give your full attention to the class that we're in now. Then we have these moments of study. That's really important. Integrating the spiritual practice in your daily life is even more important than going on a once-off trip to a foreign country that we've you know, I- idealized because it's exotic or foreign to us. Integrating the spiritual practice in your life is the most important thing to make consistent results towards that path of self-realization. Okay?
definitely go and study in India if you want. I'm not saying not, not go, but don't feel bad if you don't have the financial resources and you cannot go, family circumstances, you cannot go. And if you do go, whether it's a retreat or it's an online intensive training or it's in India, go and just put all your heart and all your soul into the experience and then bring it back into your life. Bring it back into your life and really integrate it into your life. Okay? Good. So now, all right, there's one last question. After this last question, then we're going to do the closing prayer, the one that I said before. Uh, so Nati is asking, can I talk more about how mindfulness and meditation and yoga is helping the university and career? And will I have another retreat soon? Yes, I'm, I'm going to do another retreat soon. I don't know when. I'm waiting to see if I'm going to be allowed to go to Europe or not. I have some, um, I have a retreat that I'm supposed to do in person in Norway in August, but I don't know if I'm allowed to go yet. If I'm not allowed to go, then maybe something can happen then. But if I'm, so I don't know. I don't know yet. Definitely keep a, keep um, some, you know, eyes out for that. But then in relation to mindfulness and meditation in university career is also like mindfulness and meditation in the life circumstance. The entire spiritual path is most effective when it is integrated into your everyday life. So when your thoughts have been reprogrammed, your thoughts about yourself, your thoughts about your work, your school, your life, other people, other beings, your family, your friends, when your thoughts have a baseline to be reprogrammed towards loving kindness, towards friendliness, when your basic attitude towards yourself is one of friendliness, then your life changes. And this is extremely important to think about, okay? All right, now we're going to do the last of the Shanti Mantras to close our time together. So hands in prayer. Purnamadak Purnamidam Purnat Purnamudachate Purnasya Purnamadaya Purnameva Vashishyate Om Shanti 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 Thank you very much, everyone. It's been my honor, my privilege to share this time with you. May you all be blessed. May you all be happy. Namaste. Good. Super. So next week, my teacher, Sharaji, is teaching. Same time next week. And then, the, then I'm teaching two weeks from today. And then again, he's teaching. So you can get the opportunity. You can't go to Mysore. Mysore is coming to you now. So you can sign up. And it feels very much like being in India. His count is a little slower than mine. And he's going to yell at you more if you don't follow the count. So be prepared. Okay? Have fun. I see you. Maybe I see you as a fellow student next week. And maybe if not, then in two weeks from now. Lots of love, everyone. Bye. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, 
I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit, which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.